web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you uh, this new month in July to the Bible Line. We're so glad that you can be with us today. It might be that you are a first-time listener. And so for the next hour, we typically take people's questions as they've been studying God's Word. Maybe there's a personal issue or a challenge in their life or ministry they'd like biblical counsel on. Well, if we can help, we will do our best. We will attempt to answer every question from the Bible because that's the only book God ever wrote and inspired. That is our authority as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a question, you can contact us, as just mentioned in the intro, in a number of different ways. You can call us direct at 843, the South Carolina Exchange, 843-525-1859, 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, we're happy for you simply to dictate the question, and we will receive it that way. So let's go ahead, Rick, and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor. Our first question comes from somebody who lives just a little northwest of Boston. It's Rhonda from Winchester, Massachusetts. She says, the wife of our relatively new pastor is a woman in her late 30s. Each Sunday morning and evening, as well as midweek prayer meeting, she wears some sort of a head covering. She came from a church in upstate South Carolina where this teaching was presented and followed by the women of the assembly. Our pastor hasn't addressed this particular teaching from the Corinthians except to say that he won't make it an issue as it could be divisive. I don't know anyone else who follows this teaching. I get confused because pastor's wives won't wear any skirts or dresses. I prefer conservative clothing. I'm not sure what the biblical teaching is regarding this conservative matter regarding the covering of a woman's head during the worship service. As soon as the service is over, she takes it off. Thank you for your answer. All right. Um, I'm not sure the section there where she says uh, her, I get confused because pastor's wife won't wear dresses or skirts. What does she wear? Pants? Or, I don't know. Perhaps slacks, I guess. Slacks, okay. So maybe she thinks it's inconsistent. I don't know. Obviously, dress should be modest, whatever that looks like. You can have a skirt or a dress that's very immodest, just like you can have a slacks that are immodest. So the key is modesty, uh, not uh, pants or slacks or whatever you want to call them, culottes or whatever the technical terms are versus a dress. Modesty is the issue at hand. Uh, You're raising a question really from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that your pastor's wife uh, obviously has an issue of conscience on, which I can respect. Uh, Let me me read the passage. It says, um, 
it opens and it says, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. So we're dealing with an issue of what we call head covering. So let me just give some cultural background uh, you say you've never heard this uh, exercise before. It was actually done for decades, in the, um, uh, even in the American church. Uh, but more recently, obviously, it's pretty rare. You don't see people uh, typically in a church today with a head covering, unless you're maybe in a particular denomination like the Brethren or whatever it might be. But uh, Paul is clear here. Um, He says, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces or he dishonors his head. Um, And that's because of the order of authority, the order of creation. And so Paul makes an explicit statement that it's inappropriate for man to pray under a head covering and inappropriate for a woman, as he's just said, to pray without a head covering. Now, the idea of a head covering was important in that culture And I will say in some cultures today, because to wear a head covering was a public symbol that you were basically under the authority and protection of another, specifically your husband, as the context draws out. He's not just dealing with any old relationship, but he's dealing with the relationship of a husband and a wife. And God gives authority to a man to be the head of his wife, just as Uh, And that makes them no less equal any more than the father is the head of Christ, and Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. Uh, Anyone in good biblical theology could not say that the father and the son are not equal, for the Bible affirms their eternality and their equality. But within even the um, Trinitarian uh, doctrine of of the Bible, there are different roles within the Trinity. And so Christ is in submission to the father, and uh, just as the woman is in submission to her husband. Now, in some cultures today, uh, wearing um, a covering of some kind, and it will express itself in different ways. In biblical times, we're not talking about a little doily that went on the top of the head. When I was a young man in the Catholic Church growing up in the 1960s, every woman that came into the church immediately put a doily on her head. Vatican II changed that and it was no longer required, but even that was not what we were speaking of. A head covering was uh, much more involved. It's not like a Muslim head covering, and so some translations render it veil, and maybe some people have the uh, imagined view where all you can see is a slit of eyes. That's not it either, biblically, as you go back and you look at uh, the historical expression of head coverings, but it was a significant covering. Uh, Even in the former Soviet Union, when we started going to former Soviet satellites in the late 90s, I could walk into a church and I could look over the audience and immediately tell you which uh, women were married and which were not. All the married women had a head covering on that went over their entire head, and it was more like a scarf. It tied at the chin 
uh, and all the single women did not have one. What were they saying? They were saying in practice, I recognize my husband is the head of our home, and I want to publicly express that here in this worship service, and so I wear a head covering. In fact, in some cover, in some cultures, that head covering is there the entire time, uh, where they wear uh, the head covering 24-7, except, of course, when they're in their homes. So that has begun to change in a number of these countries where the uh, culture that was so uh, protected from the rest of the world for 70-some years under communism, uh, it began to change. And now through the Internet and through uh, the travel of uh, people from the former Soviet Union, which they could not do, and when you think about uh, when communism started in 1917, uh, you know, people didn't get in airplanes and fly everywhere, and very few people got on a boat and traveled somewhere. So what I'm saying is that a lot of the cultural expressions in the early church were protected for, you know, 1,500 years and longer in the former Soviet Union. And so the exercise of head coverings uh, continued. Uh, as the culture changed, it's it's somewhat like the issue of uh, washing feet. Jesus said, if you um, act like I act, that is, wash one another's feet, uh, you'll be blessed. You're doing a, an act of a, of a servant, and we're all called to be servants. Well, we don't typically wash each other's feet anymore today. Why? Because of the situation, the culture, we don't wear open sandals, we're not walking on dusty, dirty roads through uh, mud in the springtime, and it's just a, it's a different culture. But the guiding principle that has never changed is still in place, that we're called to be servants. And the guiding principle here is that the man is the head of a woman, and I know that's offensive to some people, to say that a man is the head of uh, his wife. Uh, the gune here, it's in reference to a wife. It's not talking about just any old relationship out in public. He's talking about the marriage relationship. And that's affirmed in Colossians and Ephesians as well, that God has made the man the head, and it goes back to Genesis. And that's offensive to people, but it's biblical, and it's uh, in the smallest microcosm of life that a child learns to respect authority. Where do they see it initially modeled? In the husband-wife relationship, where there is equality that is affirmed. The woman is not treated like a piece of furniture, like a piece of property, like a living slave. She's her husband's equal. She is his helpmate. But at the same time, she recognizes that we need a leader. And if you have two heads, you've got a monster. If you have no head, there's no direction. So the child learns to respect the police officer. And so as we see the breakdown of the family today, we're seeing this very thing. We're seeing police disrespected, authorities disrespected. Where does this come from? It comes down from just decades of the family being blasted and obliterated in God's design for men and women. And, and you know, we're trying to erase all these distinctions with the gay community, with egalitarian theology, and on and on and on it goes. So the idea of a Jewish man under a head covering really doesn't come until several centuries after Christ. And so sometimes you'll see 
you know, you go to Israel today and uh, a, a pious Jew will typically uh, wear a head covering, but his reason for doing it is different um, than the culture that Paul is addressing and that he is saying, I am under God's authority. And so reverently, he puts a head covering over his head. Um, but in the first century church, that was not an expression that even Jewish men exercised. And so sometimes in the movies, we see Christ putting a head covering over him. That's not something he would have exercised in the first century. But um, for a woman not to wear a head covering was basically saying, I'm not under my husband's authority. In fact, typically the women who did not wear head coverings uh, were marketing themselves as either a prostitute or in the book of Numbers, a woman who had her head shaved, uh, no head covering. They were speaking, of course, her hair being shorn was a mark of an adulteress. And so what I'm trying to say is it sounds to me like your pastor's wife is out of good conscience trying to exercise what she believes to be true today. I would see it as a cultural expression today. But in some nations of the world where the head covering is still a symbol of authority, for instance, when we began to travel to the Ukraine in 1998 and my wife accompanied me, she always wore a head covering in those churches. Why? Because it was the prevalent expression throughout that entire culture that a married woman not to wear a head covering was a mark of a symbol to say, I reject my husband's authority that God has placed over me. And uh, she didn't want to do that. I I think it might be different today in some of the churches where that might not be critical and necessary, but it would still be a minority of churches because the culture is slow to change. But God's principle remains the same. So that's a great question you ask. In uh, Winchester, Mass., that's a my, my aunt lives in Winchester, Mass., my aunt, as we would say in the north. All right. Good deal. Good deal. Well, um, we just got a call from Faye in Springfield, Georgia, and she wants to know regarding our current pandemic, could this be part of God's judgment? Or is this just another incident like HIV, the Spanish flu, and previous pandemics that are part and parcel of a fallen world? And then she's got a follow-up question. You want me to read that now? Sure, no, go ahead. Okay, so um, a friend of this caller believes that we are currently living out Matthew 24 and that verses 40 and 41 are talking about the rapture rather than the tribulation. She's been listening to your uh, series on the Revelation on Search the Scriptures and realizes that cannot be, but uh, she wants you to clarify it for her friend. Okay, well, let me start with... um, is it possible that this pandemic is a judgment of God? Certainly anything's possible. And some things are known only to the Lord our God. But I will say, and I address this question, is God angry with us? In a sermon that I preached really right at the start of the COVID outbreak, and the answer is yes, God is angry at us. He's angry at our world, and he's angry at our nation because we are spurning him. And where do I get the biblical justification for that? Romans chapter 1, where it speaks of the wrath of God that is being revealed. Uh, There's different kinds of wrath that is described in the Word of God. There's cataclysmic wrath, 
where God sends a special judgment, so to speak, as he did on Sodom and Gomorrah, where he rained down fire and brimstone, or when he did during the uh, time of Noah's flood, or when he did another time, or will do it in another time in the future in the coming tribulation period. And when God did that, it was to send a message. God doesn't burn down every Sodomite uh, city. If there is, if he did, there would be uh, cities wiped out across the world. But he did it just once to send a message about how he feels about perverted behavior. And it forever stands. And again, the book of Jude tells me that. It's an example of how God feels about this sin. And it is also an example of the coming judgment. Hey, listen, if um, if Christ could say of that uh, so-called evangelical triangle of cities there in which he ministered, Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, that it would be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for the people of Sodom, then you, you, you really have a picture of how uh, intense hell will be, and it's described in an intense way. And if someone goes to hell, it will not be God's fault. It will be their fault because they rejected God's plan, God's uh, provision of forgiveness. But there's cataclysmic wrath. There's eschatological wrath that will happen in the future during the time of the seven-year tribulation. And it uh, goes like a rheostat that is being turned up. It progressively gets more intense And again, the purpose is for God to send a signal that men might repent and believe because even the future eschatological tribulation wrath doesn't even begin to compare to what the eternal wrath will be, which is another expression. But there's also wrath that can be shown today. And so Paul says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, not will be, but is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God can currently express his wrath today, and it's for a specific uh, reason, because what they knew about God, they did not affirm. And so God says, look, I made myself known through the creation. My attributes, my power, and my nature are not vaguely seen, but they're clearly seen being understood through what he has created or made so that men are without excuse. So no one can say God doesn't exist because God's creations, the heavens and the earth, are telling of the glory of God. Uh, They have to go against the clear uh, general revelation of creation, not to mention the general revelation that he will express in the second chapter in verses 14 and 15 of Conscience. So men are without excuse, but though they knew God, not in a saving way like John 17, 3 speaks of, but they knew God of his, in terms of his existence, like the demons know that God exists, James will affirm, but they, they do more than some of us do. They tremble. They didn't honor him as God. And really, you think about our nation, you think about our world, and our nation has led the world in heresy. And so our nation, uh, through the early teachings of Charles Darwin and then officially affirming that evolution should be taught in place of creationism, and I remember, I think it was my fourth grade teacher, Miss Weeks, who felt so apologetic that she had to teach evolution. She said, I'm required to teach this, and she was an old woman, and she must have been teaching for 40 years 
um, and she was still teaching, and she was a great teacher, um, and she had never taught evolution before, and you could tell it was grinding against everything that she thought and believed, but she was required to teach it. So the Scopes trial goes back decades before that, but it was beginning to show up in the textbooks, uh, the very issues that were now being required. And, of course, what drove that was 1957, a decision where, for the first time in American history, uh, the government uh, got involved, the federal government got involved in public education. Up until that point, it was all state-controlled. And so this was a dream of guys like Dewey, who uh, John Dewey, uh, a signer of the Humanist Manifesto and the first honorary president of the National Education Association. This was a dream for them. If they could get states dependent on federal money, then they could control the education of children from the top down. And that's precisely what began to take place. And so this became required in textbooks, and the states began to lose control if they wanted the federal money that progressively they've become more and more dependent on. So we said, no, God, we, we're not going to affirm him as the creator. We're going to say that this is all, you know, out of the glue, into the zoo. That became you mentality, uh, that, you know, some spark out in the universe generated life, and here we are today to this sophisticated you know, highly ordered creation. It's just pure nonsense. Uh, And then we went further. We refused to acknowledge God. We couldn't post the Ten Commandments on the walls. We couldn't pray. We couldn't read the Bible. And so what happens is God gave them over to sensuality. Did that lead us to repentance with all the problems that it brought where God says, okay, you want to you want to be wicked? I'll let you be wicked, but there's consequences always to wickedness. No, we kept going. And so God gave us over to stage two to homosexuality. Did that cause us to repent? No, we went from homosexuality being illegal in all 50 states to becoming legal to the point where uh, we are now affirming it as a lifestyle. And it slowly began to enter in, oh, we need to give these gay couples, you know, mutual insurance benefits. We need to allow them to adopt little children. And on and on it went to the point that we affirmed gay marriage. And last week in Massachusetts, in Somerville, right outside of Boston, uh, they affirmed um, multiple um, marriages uh, where, you know, you could polyandry, where you can have four or five wives if you want. And that's logical, and I'm sure that may be challenged at some point on the Supreme Court level. But what can the Supreme Court do? If they are going to affirm gay marriage, then why can they not affirm that a man could have four or five wives? I made that suggestion 10 years ago in a sermon where I preached on, is it okay to be gay? I've preached it twice. I said, that's the next logical step. And then there's even another logical step that will follow, and that is, you know, people marrying little children. I mean, that's where we're headed. And so we didn't repent. So God's given us over to a depraved mind, an upside down mind, an akodakimos mind, um, where there is just, there's no rationale to what we're thinking. We're seeing that in our days. I mean, this ongoing spirit of lawlessness that is unfolding. So is it possible that the pandemic is a judgment of God. I think it's quite possible. And I, I don't think it's necessarily by accident that the United States is leading the world in terms of the number of deaths 
in recorded cases of this pandemic. Why? Because we've led the world in wickedness and we've become a model, but it's not exclusively us. It's across the world. But uh, is this, um, you know, the tribulation period, which comes to the second half of her question? Uh, Read the second half again, if you would, Rick. Indeed, she would like to know, a friend of her, she says, believes we are currently living out Matthew 24, and that verses 40 and 41 in particular are talking about the rapture rather than the tribulation. Okay, so um, what I would suggest maybe for your friend to do would be to listen to my Revelation series, because it is not by accident that when you come to Matthew chapter 24, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, and three of his disciples come to him, and Lord you know, tell us when these things are going to happen, what will be the signs of the coming of the end of the age. And he begins in verse 4 through 14. And if you study carefully verses 4 through 14, it perfectly mimics the, uh, the judgments, 21 in number, that come in the Revelation, sealed trumpet in bold judgment, STB, first the sealed judgments. And so verses 3 through 14 perfectly mimic the seal judgments. Now, there are preterists who say this is all historical. It's already taken place. It's just just ridiculous. They are uh, applying a hermeneutic to prophecy that they don't apply to the first coming, but they're applying to the second coming because they have a whole system of theology that they are falsely defending. Uh, But it is not by accident that what we see in verses 3 through 14 perfectly parallels what we read in the sealed judgments of Scripture. And so the birth pangs that Jesus expresses is not every time you see an earthquake today or some natural disaster or some report of famine. Oh, this is it. We're in the birth pangs of the tribulation. Not at all. Because the tribulation is not kicked off, according to the prophet Daniel, until the man of lawlessness comes on the scene and he makes an agreement with Israel. And I have a whole series of messages from Daniel 9 that this caller might want to encourage their friend to listen to. Daniel is critical to understanding the revelation. It really gives us the overall schematic, and the revelation puts details to that schematic uh, as to how it's going to unfold. When you come to, um, so for instance, in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. People, again, they say, well, you know, we're, we're getting the gospel out through, you know, s- social media and through satellites and television and the internet and all these different things. And, uh, you know, this is a fulfillment of this prophecy. I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think so at all. Because there are still like, you know, 6,000 people groups in the world that don't even have the Bible in their translation. Now, we're making progress in that, and we should do everything that we can. But what we haven't pulled off in 2,000 years, God is going to pull off in the last seven years before the second coming of Christ. And so he's going to have 144,000 Jewish evangelists. He's going to have two witnesses on on the Temple Mount. He's going to have an angel, angels have never preached the gospel before. God uses people who have been saved by grace to preach the message of salvation by grace. Uh, And he's going to have an eternal angel flying through the heavens proclaiming the gospel. So every tribe, tongue, people, and nation 
are going to hear the plan of salvation during this seven-year period, especially during the first half of the tribulation. Then there's an event that takes. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, what's that referring to? Again, you go back to Daniel 9, Daniel 11, where the abomination of desolation is prophesied. And Paul explains it in 2 Thessalonians 2, when the man of lawlessness is going to enter the uh, temple in Jerusalem, and he's going to make himself out to be God. And with that act, there is going to be an idolatrous statue, which will signal every Jew, because they know that this man will not possibly be able to be their Messiah, because God's not going to contradict previously explained revelation, and idolatry is always evil. And so obviously if Jesus went into the temple and said he was God, that would not be idolatry because it was true of him. It's not true of the Antichrist, but what will be the telltale sign that it's not true of the Antichrist is with it there's going to be a statue that is miraculously through Satan's power going to be worshipped, and there's going to be images of that made across the world. That's idolatry. Every Jew will know it's false. But when that event happens, then the second half of the tribulation kicks in all the way to the second coming. So starting in Matthew 24, 15, and what follows, you have a picture of what happens in the trumpet and the bowl judgments. And they progressively, like a woman in labor, get more and more intense until Christ comes from heaven. Uh, Verses 42 and 43 have nothing to do with the rapture. Um, Hal Lindsey, who went to Dallas Theological Seminary, where I studied, and that was always a good example of poor exegetical principles. They would use Hal Lindsey, and they'd say, we're embarrassed that Hal, you know, by the way, was married five times, and, you know, um, but we're really embarrassed by what... um, he taught on this, and here's a good reason why not to teach it. What, what is the thrust of Matthew 24? It's the events leading up to the second coming. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this. And, and he, he goes on, and he speaks about how Christ will come like a thief in the night. And he speaks about, in verses 40 and 41, therefore two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the will. That's a mill. One will be taken. That's not... That's not the rapture. Um, It's analogous to what happened in the illustration he gave right before it. When God brought judgment through Noah for the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Uh, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then, again, the connection is clear. Two men in the field, one taken, one left. Some are taken away in judgment, just as people were taken away in the great flood, and others were left like Noah in safety and in protection, and he walked into a brand new world. And so when Christ comes, the unsaved people of this world will be removed, and only believers will enter into a brand new world analogous to what Noah did. Uh, He went into a brand new world, so to speak, he and his three sons and his wife and their three wives, and, um, and, during the, and they repopulated it. And that is going to happen during the tribulation period. So believers only will enter the kingdom. 
in those who enter in their natural bodies uh, because they were not a part of the rapture that takes place before this seven-year time frame that institutes the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, they will be able to live the entire time, have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and and on and on it will go, and the earth will be repopulated. And that's why at the end of the thousand years, Satan, who had been bound for a thousand years, will be able to be loosed and uh, go against the nations of the world because not everyone will become a believer during the reign of Messiah on the earth. You'd say, that's almost impossible for me to think about. It's no more impossible than the fact that when Jesus was physically here doing miracles and fulfilling all of the prophecies that the scriptures have written of, people still persisted in the unbelief. And it will really show, among other things, how hard and depraved man's heart is because even without a devil able to tempt with his demons, the nations of the world, people will still go against God's Messiah. So um, let me just say, though, Uh, that, you know, the problems that we're having in the world today, I think, are antecedent to the return of the Messiah. Uh, There are no signs necessary ever for the rapture to take place. It could happen at any moment. That's always been true since the day of Pentecost. And so the scripture uses the term last days beginning with Pentecost, whereas the second coming of Christ is a prophetically driven event. And what we're seeing, however, are prophecies being fulfilled in our day for the second coming, which reminds you that the rapture which precedes the second coming is all that much closer. Hey, listen, before you can have birth pangs, you have to have a pregnancy. And I think we're seeing the, um, the, the we're seeing manifestations of a real pregnancy in the world, but it's nothing, nothing compared to the birth pangs that will come that's described in the Revelation. there are You take the COVID virus and multiply it 10 million times, and now you're beginning to register the kind of heartache that will come upon the whole planet. But listen, uh, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah, days of lawlessness, violence, immorality. The coming of the Son of Man, Luke adds, will be like the days of Lot, days of homosexuality, Those things have to be in place before Messiah comes. Add to that, God says, not in the last days, but in the latter days. And though the term last days can be used in the Old Testament to refer to the same time frame, but there's a time frame just before Messiah comes at the end of human history when God will gather the Jewish people back in the land. What's really interesting, what has even happened since March is uh, if you, um, what you find is the flights that are coming from Israel into the United States are virtually empty. But the flights leaving the United States into Israel are packed. Every flight is sold out. Who's leaving? Because when you go to Israel right now, you have to quarantine for 14 days. If you can go to Israel, in most countries are not allowed to anymore. Um, because their virus has come back and it's increasing and it's growing. Who's leaving? I'll tell you who's leaving. It's Jewish people. They've had enough, and a lot of them are leaving states like New York and other places, and they're going to take a permanent residence in Israel. Uh, They tell me, even since March, over a quarter of a million American Jews have left the United States to take up residence just in three months. 
This, again, is an ongoing fulfillment of prophecy where we've gone from approximately 20,000 registered Jews back in 70 AD, uh, or excuse me, in 1890, uh, when we have the first population statistics of Jewish people actually living in the land, to, to about 7 million today. That's not by accident. And there's only 12 and a half million Jews on the planet because God said he would do this at the end of time. It should be a wake-up call to any Christians. And I was on a prayer call this morning, and I appreciate these pastors, and we're praying for revival. But listen, there may be no revival that comes. The, it, God's either going to send a revival or he's going to send his son. But unless you're just ignorant, of biblical prophecy and you have no idea what God says is going to happen at the end of time. You almost have to be blind to see that God is setting the stage for the return of his son. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. A caller would like to know your view on uh, an- annihilationism. Annihilationist. <laughs> yeah. Annihil- annihilationism. Now you got me tongue twisted here, Rick. Annihilationists, you know, basically teach that when you die as an unbeliever, and some would even extend this to believers, but not typically. Typically, the doctrine of annihilationism only applies to unbelievers, that the unbeliever who dies simply ceases to exist, body, soul, and spirit, and that's the end of him. That's not a biblical doctrine. Uh, God created us as finite beings, but he created us to live for eternity, And so even Solomon can write that God has written eternity into our hearts in the book of Ecclesiastes. And that's why virtually anywhere you go in the world today, whatever religion of the world it may be, people have some kind of hope, some kind of uh, expectation, most of the time a false hope, but some expectation that they're going to see their loved one again. Uh, Why? Because God's written eternity into our hearts. And so most people in the world would just, you know, by nature, by instinct, because God wrote it into our spiritual DNA, deny the doctrine of annihilationism. But it is certainly not a true biblical doctrine, because God teaches that when he created us, he created us to live forever. God alone has eternality, no beginning or end. But he created us who were, did not exist at one time to live forever. And so, for instance, um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 tells that incredible parable of uh, a coming separation. All the nations will be gathered before him. This is at the second coming, when Messiah plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Where? The Bible says God will bring them all to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We call it the Kidron Valley, and God will have the multitudes of the world who have survived the tribulation. Now understand, uh, conservatively speaking, two-thirds of the world's population are extinguished in the sealed trumpet and bold judgments. They just no longer, you know, exist physically. They exist eternally. But those who survived the tribulation, and Jesus warned that unless those days had been cut short, nobody would have survived. That's how intense the coming tribulation will be. But all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd as a shepherd sh- separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, those are the believers in this parable, and the goats on the left. 
And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. How so? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in naked. You clothed me sick. You visited me and on and on in prison. You came to me. Then the righteous will say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or on and on? And uh, Jesus said, the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, the unbelievers, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, understand, hell is eternal. And the word for eternal fire is the same word that's used in First Timothy, Ionion, for the eternal God. And he said, I was hungry, you gave me nothing. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. A stranger, you didn't invite me in naked, you didn't clothe me sick. And in prison, you didn't visit me, and so on. And then they will say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you. And again, he'll say, um, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did not do it to me. So there's three groups of people, my brethren, sheep, and goats. This is what we call the judgment of the Gentile nations. We're all the Gentile nations of the world who survive. And again, it's a limited number of people who survives the seven-year period will be brought before the Lord in the Valley of Decision, the Valley of Jehoshaphat the Kidron Valley, and uh, he will gather them and separate them based on how they treated the third group of people, my brethren, meaning my Jewish people. Remember, during the time of the Great Tribulation, the nations of the world will go against the Jewish people. Uh, They will, even the United States of America, and you think about it, all these Christians that are gone, even on the president's cabinet, there's a number of born-again Christians Uh, And all these Christians will be gone in leadership. And the United States policy will officially be at that point, if it doesn't happen prior to it, will be to go against Israel. And uh, again, the way people treated Israel, treated the Jewish people, will be expressive of whether or not they ever met Christ as their Savior. You say, well, that's salvation by works. No, it's not salvation by works. You're saved by grace alone, but the grace that saves is never alone. If you're truly genuinely born from above, your life will show it. That's why in John chapter uh, 5, the Lord Jesus teaches justification by grace alone through faith alone. For instance, he'll say, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And so there's not a judgment for sin, for the unbeliever. Uh, if they have exercised genuine faith. They have. It's a present tense that he has eternal life. Eternal life is something you get in this life ever before you depart, ever before you take your last breath, and it's forever life. You can't lose something that's eternal. And then in the next breath, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live, for just as the Father has life in himself, Even so, he gave to the Son to have life in himself. Only God can say that of himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment. Only God is the judge, but Christ is God, so he'll do that because he's the Son of Man. 
That's a messianic title used of God the Son in the book of Daniel. Don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the gray, in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. So Jesus, in a broad sense, can say, if your life is genuinely true faith, then you'll show it by good or evil. He's not teaching. He's not denying what he just said three verses prior, that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But he is affirming that what Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 teaches, 8 and 9 says you're not saved that salvation is a gift of God. It's not of yourself. It's not as a result of works. It's by grace alone. You're saved by grace through faith. For we are his workmanship, and the word is poema. We got our English word poetry from it. We're God's poetry created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we're not saved by works, but we're saved to do good works. The grace of God that brings salvation, Paul will write, teaches us who have believed teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live righteously and holy in this present age. So Jesus in Matthew 25 is again being consistent with all of the things he's taught in his three-year ministry, that a man's life will be shown by his works and is specifically focusing during the seven-year period, because that's the thrust of Matthew 24 and 25, the events that lead up to the second coming. And he's focusing on that time frame. And then he will say to them, here's the final corker. These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. There's a definitive denial of the doctrine of annihilationism. Because the same word that's used for eternal punishment, ionion, is the same adjective that is put before life, eternal life, ionion. And it's the same adjective that's put before the eternal God. To say that God is not eternal is to say that heaven is not eternal, to say that hell is not eternal. But it is. And so the first two recipients, if you remember, who are thrown into the lake of fire, today a man dies, he goes to Hades, but Hades is later cast into the lake of fire. But the first two recipients of the lake of fire is the Antichrist and his false prophet. The devil's been bound for a thousand years. The end of the thousand years The devil is thrown into the lake of fire with the false prophet and the Antichrist, the beast. Why? Because they're still there. And they're still there this morning as I share on this radio station. And they'll be still there 10 billion years, an infinite amount of time from now because hell is forever. And so the doctrine of annihilation is a false doctrine. If you really want to explore this in detail, Listen to my message on Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where I go through this in much, much more depth. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right. We had another question that was dictated. This caller wants to be a good Christian and wants to help people who need it and ask for it, people that God has put in this woman's path. But what if you have a person that you've helped over and over and over again? When do you say enough is enough? Well, it is a stewardship issue, and you need to, um, you know, every circumstance is different. I mean, you might be helping a sick mother and who's infirmed, and enough will never be enough uh, until she goes home to be with Jesus. So obviously, I'm just using that as a hyperbolic example to underscore that there are cases when enough is never enough. But uh, there are times, clearly, when we shouldn't help people. 
Um, Paul reminds us that, um, you know, we're to do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. Um, in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, he'll say, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul believed in hard work, and so sometimes when he would arrive at a place where he was planning a brand-new church, he would take on a tent-making ministry. And it wasn't by accident that God in his providence, you know, through his daddy, had him learn the skill of making tents uh, because God knew in the future there would be a time where this great church planner would go into towns where he did not want anyone to question his motive as to why he was there because it was a common practice in the first century for there to be teachers of all kinds of religious and philosophical point of views who are there for the money. And Paul made it clear, I wasn't there for the money. He reminds the Corinthians, you, you, you could have paid me and it would have been my right for you to have paid me, but I didn't take anything from you. Um, because again, he wanted people to understand the purity of his motives and why he was there. And it was to preach the gospel. So he says, not because we didn't have the right to do this in 2 Thessalonians 3.9, not that we did not have the right, because they did. Why? Because when you sow spiritual food to people, you have a right to earn your living from the gospel. Jesus affirmed that principle. But in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Here's a command. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now look, there's a difference between a man who can't work because he's infirmed and a person who won't work. And there's a lot of people today who won't work. And we are just feeding the problem by helping such people. And so we need to be careful as Christians. And not everyone deserves our help or not everyone deserves repeated help. We have people who come to the church on an ongoing basis who need help. And I'm never going to let someone leave uh, the campus of Community Bible Church hungry. I'm not going to leave some child in an overheated home uh, because the parents, you know, spent money on alcohol and cigarettes. It's amazing to me. I always got money for alcohol and cigarettes in the Braves games, but I don't have money to pay, you know, the electric bill this month. But I'm not going to allow some children, child to be endangered or to suffer because of the wicked sin of their parents. But neither am I going to give them the cash. We're going to send them to our food pantry. I might write a check directly to, you know, Dominion Energy. I won't. One of my staff members will. I don't handle the money as Paul didn't handle the money. No pastor should. But so um, what I'm saying, though, is that there's a there can be a repeat problem. So if someone comes to us, even a church member, and we give them, say, more than $300 in help, before we will give them another dime, 
they must go through the course that I have taught on what the Bible says about money, the theology of money. It's been entitled under a number of different things, and I taught it most recently about uh, a, a year ago. Actually, I finished it in January of this year where I was dealing with the subject and the topic of a coming financial disaster. And some of the things I wrote about, I think now we may be on the cusp of the very things that I was teaching because a nation can't borrow money forever. And I think what we're headed towards, unless God delivers us from it, no president can, though our president is wise in a lot of the economic decisions that he has made. But you cannot spend money forever and not pay the piper at some point. And that's what we're doing as a nation. So, you know, we're coming to a point where there may be a total depression at some point. And the needs of people will be literally endless. And the need for discernment will be critical. So there is a time to say enough and to hold people responsible and to say, hey, look, you know, I I don't have endless resources and God doesn't call me especially to help someone who needs to exercise the ability and the talents and the strength that God has given them to work physically. And so, you know, people bring a lot of problems on themselves. I mean, I was watching last night in the national news, some mother who, you know, she's got three kids out of wedlock and just, they were talking about, you know, just generational poverty and on and on it went. And, you know, you feel bad for those kids. They're being raised in that kind of home. But you know what happened? Some woman decided I wanted to live immorally. So she got pregnant, not once, but twice, but three times. You know, and I meet these people and they, they come and, you know, they got three children with three different fathers. And what is their greatest need? For me to share the gospel with them and to lead them to the Lord Jesus. Because if they're in Christ or a new creation, God can then change everything and erase their sin and make them new creatures and put a new um, heart to live holy and righteously and to forsake the fornication and adulterous relationships that had been their lifestyle. Well, we've only got about a minute left, so uh, you've got an upcoming meeting that you call Meet the Pastor in about a minute's time. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we have two this month, and uh, they're on Thursday nights at 715. If you go to communitybiblechurch.org, the dates are there. They're at 7 p.m. on the two Thursdays that we have them. And this is an opportunity for our visitor to find out more about our core values and how they can become a part of the Community Bible Church family. And it's certainly there to help people who don't have a true and real assurance of salvation to come to that point. And if you don't, that's like the most critical thing that you need to settle. It's in an 1,800-seat auditorium where hundreds of seats have been removed. So there's social distancing Uh, No problem there. You can live stream us, but if you do come physically, you can be 50 seats apart, and you can also get a brand new Bible and a Bible study that will help you to begin to grow. Hey, thanks for being with us today here on The Bible Line.